Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. Rob, welcome back to the table of the Leadership Drip. It is classic Cleveland, Tennessee day, oh, rainy, cold, all the things that springtime brings. So. The, the, the cool thing about here at the university is we have right in front of my office, there's a place called Alumni Park which on a good solid rainy day turns into alumni lake alumni lake yes yeah you can do some fishing in there yeah so. kind of like you can maybe up in say canada perhaps canada yeah <laughs> so well that's a good segue to our guest mr mark clark he's a senior pastor of village church a multi-site church in vancouver he's an author a coach and all kinds of things and i i believe our first canadian guest on the show yeah. come on yeah, Fusco was close. I mean, he was up there, but yeah, Fusco's close. Yeah, he's yeah, uh, but, but he's not Canadian. Yes, yeah, so no, we are eh? international. We are an we, international podcast. We are an international podcast. That's yes. exactly right. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. So I'm a sports fan. Are you are you a big sports fan up there in Toronto? Uh, yeah, no, I, w- I was into sports like when I was, you know, in the 90s. I lived, uh, I, I grew up in Toronto. So I was a big like Maple Leafs, Blue Jays. The Blue Jays won, of course, two World Series back to back. I was 12 and 13 years old. So that was my life. But since then, you know, I moved to Vancouver and they don't really have good sports teams. So I kind of okay. got out of it. But so what it, Toronto yeah. guy, you watched the Joe Carter home run then. Oh, my parents were there, third baseline. No. I, I was at home with my girlfriend, knowing where they were. I get, <laughs> <laughs> I can see where they were. I knew they weren't coming home. No, that's crazy. Uh, they were third baseline on that home run in Toronto. Yeah, that was epic. Two years in a row, man. That's crazy. So, how does a guy from Toronto, which was is the east coast of Canada, for those who are not geo. Yeah geographically inclined yes that's that, okay, that sounded good we are to the west coast of canada in vancouver uh it was school i went to uh bible college i mean grew up in toronto went to bible college there um you know got got saved when i was like 17 18 walked through a church for the first time when i was 19 so people came around me and they said i was going to go into like the film industry and kind of that whole world and people came around they said go into minute you know we think god's calling you to ministry so i went to bible college four years did a bachelor's degree while I was there, got a passion for academics. And so I came, my wife and I got married 2003. I moved to BC because Regent College, which is a very uh, uh, known uh, international seminary, w- which really focuses on academics. So what I was doing was I was doing a master's thesis in Vancouver, and then I was going to go to the UK and do a PhD. So I was only stopping here for two years and I told myself, I'm not going to get involved in ministry. I'm not going to get involved in people or church. I'm going to go write a thesis and go, you know, overseas to, to the UK. And then I came here, did my master's thesis uh, on Romans 9 to 11, which there, you know, it, there's a couple things written on, uh, you know, a couple articles written on. And then, uh, and then God said, don't go do a PhD. I want you to plant the church in Vancouver. So 16 of us started a church in my living room, uh, in 2010 so that's anyway that's why we ended up here was doing doing school that's so god to like lead you somewhere and be like oh hey by the way you're staying here for a bit yeah that's yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) exactly yeah that's cool that's cool so you are a multi-site church um which we have talked about a little bit on the show the multi-site paradigm kind of uh um, I'm just curious. This is kind of me geeking out right now. This ahead, is if yeah. anyone else, but, um, so what is, what is sort of your multi-site model? Like, how do you guys, 
how do you guys incorporate your your multi-sites into the regular Sunday worship experience or yeah. leadership platforms, et cetera? Yeah, so so um, our our multi-site thing was basically born out of uh, a need, not so much a let's be a multi-site thing. You know, it's like a means to an end because uh, so we we are now 11 years old and we don't own a building. And so right. uh, we had to go from an elementary school to a performing arts center that's attached to a high school. And it just, it, it was it was too big. We were running three or four services in that one spot. And uh, we started going, okay, we gotta, we gotta start spreading out. And so we started realizing, okay, people are driving from here and here and here. So let's start shifting them over. So we found this Seventh-day Adventist church that could seat 1200 people and we went, okay, you 1200, you go over there. And then we started going, let's leverage movie theaters. Um, but so one of the things we did, what's, in, what's somewhat unique about our model is we did something that we call cinema sites, which is basically, you know, there's people who do kind of, um, you know, sermons in movie theaters, but then they do live worship. But what I always found in a movie theater was that the worship didn't sound good because those rooms are built to be dead, right? Like they're built for sound. And so I said, well, why don't we just film the worship too? And we'll put it all up on a screen. We'll mix it perfectly. And people can walk into a movie theater, the lights dim and they get the worship and the sermon. And everyone's like, dude, this ain't gonna work. No one's gonna wanna go to church like this. And I'm like, no, I think you will if we do it right. And so we spent about nine months like researching, how do we do this right? Um, meaning we're not zooming in and we're not doing cuts. It's all one shot that just sits, yeah. hmm. you know, it on the whole and it shows the whole stage and you walk across, you know, anyway. So we started doing that. And now about probably 60% of our people attend one of those sites. So, so now it's about nine sites in Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Toronto uh, under that model. And so, yeah, we do video. Some of our sites have live worship and video sermon. And some of the sites have, video worship and video sermon that meet in the movie theater so anyway so that's about nine sites and they all uh interconnect together as one family yeah i think it's one of the most interesting realities about the multi-site paradigm whether you're like a hardcore franchise model where everything's the exact same like we were at saddleback or if you're you know a highly decentralized model whatever your model of multi-site is i think i think the the cool thing is a lot of people say it, it won't work but in reality almost every multi-site model works under the exception that they don't lose financing. That seems to be the number one critical kind of right. factor that, you know, as long, as long as they are financially uh, sustainable, the multi-site right. paradigms are just, are, are still, I think, uh, valid and, and uh, yeah, I feel like so. um, Mark Batterson over at national mm -hmm. did a similar model with the cinemas. I don't know, but I think they did live worship though. Yeah. So how did this sort of model you already had in place of everything's already filmed affect you guys as the world kind of shut down a year ago well yeah so we got to the place where i was getting tired kind of driving around preaching at all these different campuses and i was doing you know four or five a, a weekend and or uh, just on a sunday alone because we don't do saturdays so it was like i'm getting i'm done so what we actually shifted to was i preach before covid i preached the eight o'clock service uh, to a room, half the room would be empty. So we'd make everybody sit behind the camera row. So it was like 15 empty rows, then the camera row, and then everybody at the eight o'clock service was behind the camera. And I would preach to those people. 
and we would film it for the cinema site because you don't want people walking in front of it like a bad Russian, you know, bootleg movie or something. <laughs> um, and so, and so you got, you know, a full shot of the whole thing. And then that was it. So I would preach the eight. And then the three, the three other services at that campus and all the other campuses were the sermon from the week before. Mm -hmm. And so the screen would, the LED wall would drop down for the people, even at that main campus. So if you wanted to see me live, you would have to come to the eight o'clock service, which you have to be really Christian to bother coming to that. Um, and then you would show up at eight and you would watch that. Other than that, it's video. And so I've been video for everybody for three, four years. So that shift to COVID, it was like everyone just is basically the same. It's just yeah. like, you know, <laughs> hey guys, now you just get to stay home and get, instead of having to come to church. So, so that shift was pretty natural uh, for our church, I think. And uh, the way that they kind of interacted with the service. I mean, obviously people are uh, you know, dying to get back and there's a sure. desire to, to gather again, but I think that'll take a bit. Uh, it'll probably take a year or two before people Canada's, you know, we're different than the States, right? Our, you know, we're 37 million people lined up on the border of America. We have a more collectivist mindset, right? So like Canadian, you know, the government's like, Hey, stay in your homes. We're like, okay, let us know when you, when we can come out, you know, <laughs> you, know you, guys, you guys are like, screw the government. I have liberty. <laughs> you know, so we're a little bit of a different, we're probably a little easier to control in that sense, but, but there are some Canadians that are like, okay, this is enough. We got to start gathering again. And, but we, you know, we rent everything. So we can't, even if we wanted to be cowboys, we couldn't because we don't have a building. So everything's rented. So all the movie theaters and the, and the performing arts centers are like, yeah, you can't come back here. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we haven't gathered as a church uh, since, since last March. And I think we're hoping to get something going by the fall, like October. So, wow. so where have you moved your filming and everything to yeah. in this interim? So I have, we have an office, uh, office space, and we have a studio that we built so what we did is, uh, you know, kind of like the Mandalorian where they shoot everything on a wall, you know, uh, we have a, we built a big psych wall that is rounded and then we put an LED wall uh, on the other, on, on the, so it fills it out. And then I sit on the, on a, basically a sound stage and preach to a cameraman. And then the worship team on a separate day records a whole set with multiple cameras. And then we edit it all and put it online because our approach was, um, this is a different medium, right? Like we can't just, don't just take what you do on a Sunday where you're talking to people in chairs and then just put it online. That's not, that's, that's putting your service online, but there's, but online church to us felt like a different philosophy. It's like the medium has to adapt a bit. And so what we started doing was going, no, this is like a Netflix show. Like, you know, it's funny, man, we overnight, every church became uh, like a, a TV studio. And if you didn't make that flip, you're still trying to kind of do poor man's church and then just put it online, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's like, you gotta, so we started doing stuff where I would go away to like locations and shoot a seven week sermon series, sitting in a room, looking at the camera, having a teleprompter kind of, I'd write, you know, seven sermons in the and I would basically kind of be acting almost in front of the camera doing like a, 
a 40 minute monologue in a space that was controlled with B-roll and, you know, to kind of almost adapt to the medium of like, don't just like sit in a room and kind of talk to chairs and then put it online because the way people are interacting with it in their living rooms uh, is a little different. And so the same with worship. So we've tried to adapt a little bit. Now it'll be interesting to see what we do on the other, when we get back to worshiping live, because I don't, we're not going to want to do it twice. So, yeah. Well, that's interesting. And I know, I know uh, church in Canada probably looks very similar and also very different at the same time, maybe from sure. some of our mainline churches uh, here in, in the States, but um, you know, Jeff and I are both church planners and we've planted churches, awesome. different parts. And, and I, I mean, I'd even planted a church in Europe, but in a heavy wow. country, but the point is to this question, like what is church planning like in Canada? Like, how are you engaging young adults into that, into that reality? Because from the conversations that we've heard or we've, we've been a part of, Canada is not an easy place to actually plant churches. No, no, it's kind of a graveyard (laughs) uh, (laughs) of church planting. Um, I remember when I planted out here, it was kind of like, okay, this is BC, this is Vancouver. So Vancouver is one of the most, you know, secular of all this, you know, they call it the left coast. Um, it's super, uh, but it's spiritual in the sense of like, so Toronto, you get like the, you know, the kind of house I grew up in, right? Atheistic, no church, no Bible, no right. religion, no nothing. On the West Coast, you get a little bit more of, well, it's Daniel Fusco, basically. It's like, it's like, we love spirituality. We love, you know, we're, we're religious. We like, you know, we eat proper things and we run on this bee wall and we wear lululemon pants and think the universe owes us something you know whatever so it's like that's the world you're trying to plant into and so uh which is sometimes a harder world because they think they're already there right they right. they think yeah. they already well i already believe in god and you're and you're you're preaching the gospel and you're like yeah vague spirituality is not actually enough it needs to be explicitly Christological. You need to actually believing in God isn't the goal here. It's it's actually believing in Jesus and what Jesus has done and how Jesus, you know, all of that. And so, in planting a gospel center church, we're like, okay, well, um, this is going to be for skeptics like me, uh, agnostics, atheists, Buddhists, uh, people of other religions, mm-hmm. New Age people, but also de church people who walked away. And what we started to find was a bunch of them coming back and going, man, I feel like I'm hearing the gospel for the first time. I feel Mm -hmm. like I don't. And and, I mean, this is just God. This is nothing to do with us. But like, it's like, you know, I had had one of our it was interesting. We hired a staff uh, member recently and their and their wife kind of just texted me. And she's like, it's so strange. Obviously, I've been a Christian for my whole life. I've been in church for 25 years. She's like, it feels like I'm like it feels like I'm just like looking back at what the last 20 years was and going like, what was that? I don't even know what that was. Uh, This feels just right. Um, And so I think what happened is a lot of people started to kind of get that a little bit. And then they started to get excited and they started to bring their friends and then their friends would get their life changed. And then they, so uh, part of that is um, it's a really difficult place to plant a church for sure. Um, But my my message is like man the gospel still works right you know people are still hungry it's romans one right it's the it's the power of god unto salvation like we did a uh an event called church in the park where we do uh church in a park 
Uh, <laughs> super creative. So, yeah, so I mean, of you. It, it took it took at least five meetings to come up with that title. Um, <laughs> so we, uh, so we, we, you know, you got thousands of people in this this public space, you know, worshiping Jesus. I'm preaching the gospel, whatever. And one of our staff members walks up to this guy. He's got this fishing rod, and he's and he's got it in this pond in this park. And he goes, you know, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm just fishing for, you know, fish. Like I got it. And he's like, oh, there's, you know, so they started chatting about life or whatever. They got into his life a bit. And then the guy after like half hour goes, you know what? I'm lying to you. I, I, I there's no fish in this pond. Um, I went and got my fishing rod. So I wouldn't look like I cared, but I really wanted to just know what you guys were talking about. And it's like, the reality is, man, people are hungry. Yeah for, yeah for purpose and meaning and value and fulfillment in life and we got the most powerful message in the world so once you start clarifying that um like everyone told me the only way you're going to plant a church in canada that's going to work is you got to kind of make it simple and you know don't call people to staff and you know just basically go you're okay i'm okay sorry you know whatever and uh and i was like yeah that's no so I just started like, you're a bunch of sinners, you're a disaster, but Jesus is the hero of your own, you know, your life. And, and it, you know, verse by verse through the Bible for three years at a time, you know, uh, and people just started to get their life changed. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is offensive. I'm going to go get my friend. And they'd bring their friend and their, their life would be changed. And it was like, it was like this crazy snowball effect that started to happen. And so, um, man, it, by God's grace, this, the, it's just been crazy watching people give their life to Jesus and seeing baptisms and life transformation and all of that. So I get, so to answer your question, yep, it's super, it is hard, um, because people are of a whole different mentality here. It's, it's a little, it's probably a generation further along in regard to post-Christianity than the U S mm -hmm. um, a generation further along in secularization. You know, you look to like Quebec, which is you know, the French part of, um, part of Canada and, um, just on the East side of Toronto and, uh, you guys like that, that thing, Mark Nall wrote a book years ago. Um, what happened to Christian Canada? And he pointed out that in Quebec, um, per capita, it was probably one of the most religious places on the planet because of Catholicism. It was like 96.8% Catholic or something. And now it's like Saudi Arabian levels within two generations. It's like 0.1% Christian. And so it's like, we have made a shift culturally for sure. And so my, my, my task is like, I got to trust that the Bible and the gospel actually do the work yeah. and still transform lives. And it is, and it's, and it's crazy. It's changing people's lives and, and God's doing a cool thing through it. So it, there's hope, there's hope in it too. I think yeah. it's interesting because we're, we're kind of setting in the Bible belt of the South in the United States. Right. So our sort of religious uh, kind of framework conundrum and framework is we gotta, we gotta decrease or deconstruct the religiosity of our culture sure. here, right? Because sure. people grow up in church here. Like they, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's not that they're interested in becoming disciples. You know, we talk a lot on the show about being cultural Christians and it's, and so kind of the opposite extreme of maybe what you're going through in Canada, but it, it's, um, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. it's, it's presenting the gospel in a way that is authentic, but maybe not new in the sense that um, they've heard it before, but new in the sense of, oh, this is what it means and not that. 
You know yeah. what I'm saying? So it's the way, yeah, the, the way that, the way that I think about that task, which, which there's people in that scenario here too, um, is re-evangelization. It's like, um, right. The, the image I've given in the past is like C.S. Lewis talked about the idea that when you talk about marriage to a virgin, to someone who's not married, they're, they have a certain view of it and they get excited and they do. But if you talk about marriage to a divorced person, they've come through marriage, they've come out the other side of it and they know what's wrong with it. So they have a very different conversation and you're, yeah. you're basically in your setting it's not a, a jungle of people who's never heard the, about Jesus before. It's people who've been through marriage, come out the other side of it, and now you have to re-evangelize them versus yeah. straight up, you know, yeah. never heard of so, so, Mark, is it the same approach? I mean, you, you've talked about this gospel-centered church, this Christological approach, and, and you, you talked about having de-church people in your church as, long, as well as the atheists. Sure. So is this sort of gospel approach, this sort of preaching Christologically working on both ends of that spectrum? Yeah. Yeah, because I think what, what has happened is people even who grew up in the church, they, you know, you know what it's like. We, we as pastors, we, uh, we want to do what works, right? Yeah, and so right. we become pragmatic, and that's good. But people live in that so long that they they forget like there's only i think there's only so long you can exist in like a setting that like you're listening to sermons and part of sermon series that are they're so creative and they have so many things around them and they're seven weeks on this and eight weeks on that and 10 weeks on this and four weeks on that and you go through that for so long that when someone just like goes okay here's the deal Mark chapter one, verse one. And then they just read it and they just preach to you and they do that for three years. You start to go, right. That's actually what this is about. It's like, <laughs> not a, like, I'm not, I'm not lost in the, like the, and not that there's anything wrong. I mean, I do a lot, a lot of topical. So I'm just using that as an example of like the, the simplicity of going, like the job of the gathered church is like, you know, exposing the word so that people meet the word behind the word, mm -hmm. right? And that you're constantly like going, because when when these people's lives fall apart, when someone in my right. congregation's kid gets, they run over them or they get that diagnosis or whatever, what do I want them? What's going to wake them up in the morning? What's going to put steel in their spine? My My little sermon that rhymed and my, you know, the fact that I brought a motorcycle out, you know, whatever, it's like, it's the text, you know? So at the end of the day, it's like, I gotta, I gotta get them thinking not only, and I think coming back to what you guys do, I think this is a generation that doesn't want to just be shown what to think. They want to see how you got there. Yeah. You don't only say, here's what you think. You say, here's how to think. Let me construct a way of thinking and, and show you, exemplify how yeah. I got to these conclusions rather than, hey, you know, let me just walk out of my, work and tell you the conclusions this is a curious you know generation that wants to know well how did you get to that conclusion yeah that, that's, that's this, super helpful this will this will lead into the next question but um i was having a conversation yesterday with another uh local leader here in town and uh, we were talking about um sort of these younger 
um, less experience and that's not a negative. They just, they're not old enough to have a lot of the life experiences that maybe Jeff and I have, we're a little older, right? So, um, but the point is they're making uh, killer. How do I, I want to phrase this? They're making a lot of money teaching their peers how to make decisions. This kind of goes along with what you're saying. Like, sure. don't just tell me what to think, but tell me how to think, right? Sure. So, so I think that is such a critical um, uh, sort of glimpse into Generation Z and how we engage them and how we incorporate them into the local church body, et cetera, all those kinds of things. So to you, as you do, I know you do a lot of personal coaching, leadership coaching, things like that. So from your particular platform, are you having more conversations about how do I manage my staff or how do I lead a, a larger church? Or is it more conversations about, hey, teach me how to think? teach me how to make decisions and, and the why behind those decisions, like kind of unpack that for me a little yeah, bit. Probably. Yeah, probably both. Um, you know, I think that, I think that pastors, I mean, you guys know the busy work of ministry, you get so overwhelmed that it's like, man, I'm just trying to serve, just, just give me how to run a staff, man. Like I don't, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. most pastors are like, this is not why I got into this. It's like, you know, we didn't get into this to be epidemiologists either, but everyone thinks we should be. And it's like, yeah, that literally was not a class we took, you know, in school. I have no idea how diseases spread. Can everyone just calm down? You know, it's like, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm doing my best here. Um, you know, so there's people just like, help me manage my staff, help me, who are my, so when I coach, it was like, hey, who, who should my next hires be? You know, I'm 150 yeah. people. I have me and this staff member but I think we've got the opportunity to grow to 300. What should my strategic next hire be? Or what should my, you know, so those conversations are a lot, you know, there's a lot of those. Um, but then there's also the, it's almost like, um, you know, that book, uh, I mean, there's lots of books, right? Like you're actually, like you're referencing, like people just teaching certain habits. And I think when I, I had a meeting the other day with a group of our staff members, and I just said, teach me, you know, I don't know what I don't know. So teach me about the next generation and what they're looking for in the context of the church. And they said exactly what you're talking about. It's like they want they want something different than I was when I was a young adult, which is like, I didn't want anyone to teach me about habits. Just give me worldview thinking. Mm -hmm. And now they're like, well, but teach me how to do it. Teach me how to do it. I want to know how to do it. So it's very interesting to just see that shift and it's like, okay, uh, this is how you read your Bible. Wow, mind blown. There's there's such thing as genre. You know, the minute you just gotta enter into, by the way, revelation is different than Romans. And if you read it like Romans, you're gonna get it dead wrong. It's like, I've never heard this stuff in my life. It's yeah. like, you know, you're, okay. So you're like really trying to be like, okay. How do I teach about prayer and fasting, solitude, you know, the kind of the Richard Foster's right. you know, disciplines kind of thing. Um, that stuff is actually super popular and needed. And yeah. I was surprised. I was like, oh, okay, good to know. We have to start working off a different set of assumptions. I feel like pastors who are maybe Gen, Z, Gen X pastors or boomers are working out the assumption that the framework or the baseline is different like that they already know all the stories they know the difference between david and moses and noah sure so are you are in your teaching and preaching are you operating off an assumption that they don't know those things they don't know the oh, basics yeah i've always 
I've always done that because I, I didn't grow up in it. So, you know, in my preaching, I'll every time, and I think this is the task, right? It's like every sermon, every, everything you do, our heart has always been, you know, the older brother and younger brother in the prodigal son story. It's like, you got to preach the irreligious, secular, liberal, atheistic, younger brother who's sleeping with prostitutes and spending all his money and doesn't care about God. And the older brother who's never done anything wrong and gone to church his whole life. And, and that whole story is both of them need to repent. And I think both need to be approached with every communication, every sermon, every service, every. So when you're doing that, that means you're like, okay, for God so loved the world. Okay. What do I mean by God? Because if you're a Buddhist, you mean this. So let me define God. This is like literally how I preach love. Oh, what do I mean by love? Okay. Love. Love doesn't mean a Jennifer Aniston romance novel. It doesn't mean, or a movie. It doesn't mean butterflies. It means this, the world. Okay, let's stop. What do I mean by that? This is why it takes three years to get through this stuff. Cause I'm constantly like, I'm constantly going like, what does your neighbor think when he hears these words, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to constantly be defining and redefining those things biblically for people. And that's what people show up and go, this is why I'm bringing my friend because then we got something to talk about when we leave, because you build that call. You got to build that culture even before those people are there. Like, right. Even if you look out and you know, you baptized every single one of these people and they're Christian, you still stop and go. So you're an agnostic and you're here. You're a Muslim and you're here. You're a, you know, whatever. And you're here and you might think of God like this, but here's what the, you know, and then you kind of frame it. And over time, you, if you're talking to that person, those people start showing up versus waiting until they're there. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So in your, in your leadership consulting and coaching, um, I'm sure you've probably been able to determine by now certain rhythms, patterns, or predictions of some of the, maybe the key struggles, not only facing church leaders today, but possibly even some of the things that we're going to be facing in the future from a leadership reality. So have you been able to kind of identify some of those and, I mean, what would maybe some of those be for uh, young leaders now, but also uh, coming up in the near future? Yeah, I, I think there's some, um, there's probably different categories of, of those challenges for sure. Uh, and you guys are seeing them in, and, you know, there's theological ones, mm-hmm. uh, there's sociological ones, there's practical ones, there's ecclesiological ones, you know, there, there's all kinds of kind of, so you got the making sure we stay gospel oriented and biblically focused and all of that stuff in a culture of where the religion is self-actualization, you know, self-identity, self-fulfillment. Um, that's the whole religion of the culture that we're speaking into. You know, it's, it's like uh, Leslie Newbigin pointed out years ago, he said, uh, and, and this changes the way we do ministry, right? He said, we're not so much doing ministry and mission in the context of a secular culture. We're doing it in the context of a pagan culture. Right. And so the, the difference is not, it's, it's like, how do you do mission? Not just to people who are neutral, but who are actually worshiping other gods. Mm. And so people are worshiping sex and money and beauty and self and reputation and, you know, their intellect and other God, you know, whatever. How do you approach the missiological task 
in that world, because that is really what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people to stop worshiping other gods, not just, hey, want to give Jesus a shot? It's like, right. this is the only way to true fulfillment in your life. And these other gods will actually derail you, you know? So, right. you know, I, so, so theologically, I think that's important. I think, you know, you guys know politically answering those questions of, you know, deconversion and, and deconstruction where people are looking at the fusion of, of religion and politics and questioning, you know, uh, the, the, the 15 year old kid, as you know, right or wrong. And obviously you guys are in a bit more of a conservative state, you know, from the American landscape, but it's like, right or wrong, that 15 year old kid is looking at some of that stuff going, if this is Christianity, I'm out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Like, oh, mom, yeah. this, you guys are crazy. You know, it's like, hey, so Mark, like, it's, it's almost created a more of a tension because the parents are some of the ones on the far, one far side of the other using faith in their politics. And the 15 year old is definitely going, Hey, I don't want either side of this. Yeah. Like the church right. and the marriage of politics has been, I think, destructive to the, to the Gen Z culture. Well, I mean, even yeah. when we had Beth Moore on the show, when right. we, we, wow. Yeah, we had a whole conversation about this idea of Christian nationalism, especially here in, in the states. Uh, just yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I helped lead a, a conference with the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities here across the nation, where we talked about Christian nationalism and how do we untangle this messiness between between what is biblically true and Christian sure. and 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 faithful. And this idea of, of a kind of nationalistic approach to the political realm. I mean, obviously, this is a very difficult and messy conversation, but you're 100% right. Even, even, not the, even not the 15-year-old. I want to say the 18 to 24-year-old here in our Christian college campuses. They're like, right. I don't want any part of this. Like, yeah. this, is not, this is not the gospel. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think, I mean, like you said, you, you could probably fill five shows or more with this conversation, but I, and I always you know, I hesitate as a Canadian because there, you know, you don't want to sound like the, the, the Canadian that's like criticizing America or something. Cause I love, I love America. I think it's unbelievable. Someone well, there are to, no, there are no mean Canadians anyway. Right, right? Exactly. It's like, except, on the, hey, except on the ice, except yes, when you're playing exactly, hockey. Exactly. That's the only place you guys fight. Right. That's right. But, <laughs> but one of the things like when you read the, you know, the Wendell Berry's and the Stanley Hauervoss's and the Richard Hayes of the world, you know, which is, you know, good stuff to be reading. Uh, it's, you know, I think I was reading a story a while ago. I was sharing this on a, uh, on something recently, and this is kind of a potent example. It's, it's a controversial one, but, uh, who doesn't like controversy? So here is the picture. So the guy who drops the bomb on, it was either Nagasaki or Hiroshima, um, the A-bomb in World War II on Japan is a Catholic. And years later, he comes to realize that he just killed more brothers and sisters in Christ in that moment out of a nationalistic allegiance than anything else. And he says to himself, what, who, like, it, it raises this tension of the fact that you guys have more in common with a brother or sister in Christ who lives in North Korea than you do with non-Christians in America. And so this question of where does the allegiance and citizenship lie is massive because we are part of this transnational, transcendent, every tribe, tongue, nation, worshiping the lamb, like is thicker than blood. Um, 
reality and it creates this tension with all kinds of things, geopolitical conversations, war, you know, how the global village, the economy, you know, all of it. And it becomes this thing where you look at James and John wanting to get power in Mark 10 and Jesus is yeah. like, yeah, no, this isn't the way this works. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, and I think this was Tim Keller years ago pointed out, I always remembered, he said, you know, if you look at any other religion, it's pretty much um, remains geographically in the places it started in. So if you look at Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and you look at a map right now, it's basically kind of where those religions started originally. But Christianity always moves. And he said, um, it starts out in Israel, moves to Europe, becomes Christendom in Europe, then gets on a boat and moves to North America. And for the last hundred years it's moved from north america to latin america where three thousand people come to christ today africa and asia that's the face of christianity today not not north america and the point of that is when when christianity gets power it dies because it thrives on the margins mm. not in the seats of power because mm. now you have it's like it's like a 25 year old has nothing to lose that's why they're willing to go to war the 40 year olds got a mortgage and they got to figure life you know you got we got stuff to defend we got stuff to lose so we become less barbarian right and we move to the bureaucrat seat and we're like okay where does christianity actually it's it thrives with a bunch of people who have nothing to lose that tends to be oh. where it's you know goes and so if we keep fighting to create a kind of a Christian culture who hated that more than Jesus, Matthew 23 exoskeleton. Here's why this is dangerous because you can chant the slogans of Christianity in your schools and your courthouses and still die and go to hell. Yeah. It's a false sense of security that becomes dangerous because it becomes part of the, the milieu of the culture. And so what I kind of love about, doing ministry in Canada is that you really do stand. It's, it's like, it's not really part of the culture. It's either you're a Christian and you, and you kind of fit awkwardly into the culture or, or you're not. And you're like, yeah, no, this is silly. Why are we believing in this? So what I love uh, Rodney Stark years ago said, secularization doesn't mean the end of religion secularization stimulates innovation hmm. in the religious centers. And I think what we're finding right now is we're being forced to innovate in order to reach the culture versus just dying out and saying, well, we just give up or whatever. Yeah. So, so at Village, how has innovation, we've talked about the video models and different things, but what are some of the innovations you're doing at Village that is setting you guys apart in I hate to say making you attractive, but in a way making you attractive to people. Um, I think in Canada, um, we're, we're late adopters. I think we're slow. Like you come back to kind of the socialist mindset of like, you know, you know, it's, it's very interesting, the collective, right? 37 million people stretched across the, probably the biggest landmass in the world in regard to like a, a bordered country, save one or two. Um, you're kind of going, okay, we got to survive together. Uh, and so like for it, like you go into the hospital, you get open heart surgery, brain surgery, have three babies, you walk out and 
you just move on with life. You don't get a bill. <laughs> you know, it's like whatever. Like, like this whole mindset is like, we're but we're late adopters. So when I introduced video, it was like video's wrong. <laughs> You know, videos and i'm like really like show me that bible verse i don't like i don't remember that one and they're like no videos you know I, I, you gotta so so they have like this traditional mindset when you when it comes to religion in a sense um pretty progressive in every other area but then when it, it's like it has to be sunday morning it has to be a live person it has to be all that so um it, it's also kind of this tall poppy syndrome too which is very interesting where if you like start to kind of rise above the other people, they want to cut you down and be like, you don't do that. You know, you stay down here, you stay grounded, you know? So it's very interesting to try to then do a movement to get up and do a vision. You're like, Hey, our movement, we're going to reach every major city in Canada, which means we got to give, we got to do that. And it's like, whoa, everybody calm down. You know, that's a little, <laughs> you know, is that really right? You know, shouldn't this just be local? You know, all of that. And you're just like, oh man. So in a sense, you're, you're kind of trying to like inspire uh, versus just kind of tactically say, hey, here's the pragmatics of what we do. And so, you know, you gotta, you gotta do a lot of work on dreaming you know, for people. So, yeah, that's incredible. Hey, and by the way, shout out to the Canadian healthcare system. I am a recipient of that amazing healthcare system. Oh, there you go. We were missionaries in Europe. We went to a Canadian healthcare system, but because we weren't Canadian citizens, they did charge me 40 bucks for anesthesia stitches, the hospital visit, the whole nine yards. So, right. uh, wow. <laughs> that $40 was just, you know, that was, that was a heartbreak. There you go. I love it. So, uh, but uh, anyway, so um, kind of another question. One of the things that we talk about a lot on the show is uh, how do we communicate well? How do we communicate differently maybe than, than, than other generations? Or how do we even just find our own style of communication, which I'm sure you've, you've had to do uh, and have confidence in that. So as a creative communicator, um, how have you been able to kind of craft your own message, your own style, sort of find your strength and uh, been able to even be creative with apologetics and those types of conversations? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, sometimes you don't, you don't think about something till someone asks you to systematize it, you know, and it's like, cause you just kind of intuitively, like basically I, the biggest thing I would say, you know, by way of a principle um, would just be that people kind of play to their own personalities and strengths and gifting versus trying to do something somebody else does, you know? Um, yeah. So I remember my, one of my first sermons at, at, at the church when we moved out to BC, um, you know, the way that they did sermons was fill in the blanks and, you know, every sermon started with a joke you know, and it was like, okay. So then they got me to preach and I'm, that's not my jam. So I'm like, Hey, two Jews and a prostitute walk into a bar. And it was like, this is not working. Uh, and so, <laughs> so, so it's like, yeah, no, let's stop that. Um, and so you got to kind of play, play to your own, your own strengths and let people be drawn. Cause I'm not for everybody. Right. And that's, that's one thing we've, we've learned and I've always known, you know, it's like my mom would never probably be reached in my church. 
Interesting. Yeah. And so it's like, but you can't, you know, so, so take the church in the park or take the way that we do sermon series that, that just is, is something that conforms to my particular uh, style. It's just like, we're just going to choose a book of the Bible and, and go for as long as it goes. Like, so you don't show up and like, okay, we're doing verse this to this because I don't know where I'm going to stop. So there's no meeting with a bunch of creatives laying out a series for eight weeks, figuring out pithy titles. And there's, we don't have it. There's no title for the day. There's just, you just walk in and I just, we go and then it stops and I pray and we pick it up at verse 17 next week. Cause we ended at verse 16 this week. And, you know, I look back at like, this is interesting in regard to the, the, the conversation we're having. And I'm not saying it works for everybody. I'm just saying this, this was my particular style that when you go back and look at uh, Martin Lloyd Jones in England, back in the day, that's mm-hmm. the way he used to preach. You know, it's like 20 volumes on Ephesians, you know, and, and it was filled. People forget it was filled with young people mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. they were like, look, I get sold a bunch of stuff in my whole life, everyone's selling me something. I want to come and know that what you're saying to me isn't you just coming up with stuff. I want to see that what you're saying is based in some authoritative meta narrative that actually you're preaching out of versus coming up with stuff and then selling me on it. And I think that kind of, you know, hermeneutic of suspicion exists in the generation that we're trying to preach to. Mm. And if they can at least see, look, yeah, some of these ideas are wacky, but they're coming from somewhere. And, and people would fill his church and watch him preach two verses. Um, and he, you know, he's this old man, like, oh, hello, everybody. Welcome to church. And we're doing Ephesians six, you know, and it was like, you'd think, oh my goodness, this isn't going to work. And it's rammed. So yeah. I think there's something to, so anyway, my point is I, I, you know, by God's grace, our church allows me the freedom because it's, it's the, it's the best way that I'm going to be effective to, to do that versus kind of con- trying to conform me into a different mm. thing where my workflow is not going to work it's just not, it's just not going to work that way. So that's appealing to my gifting. And I would just say communicators need to go, what's the best way I work so that I can be most effective. Mark, do you think this expository approach that you've been taking is effective with younger generations because their whole world is bite-sized pieces of information? Like everything comes so quick and so fast and so bite-sized but to take a passage, three verses, five verses, seven verses, and sit with it for 40 minutes is the exact opposite of that bite-sized culture they're in. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a good, a good reason why. And yeah, I don't know. I, I think they, I think they can, I think they can respect it in a sense. Like, like if you think about one of the one of the big sociological challenges, you know, coming back to the earlier question about this generation, you know, obviously gender stuff, sexuality is the big one. And if, and if all you do is get on a stage and give them the conclusion, take that for an example, then they're going to go, well, you know, this guy's been reading whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you get up and go, look, I didn't come up with this. 
Like the reason I think this, let me show you a couple of the verses. I don't get to be in the authoritative chair and come up with my theology in a vacuum. I actually am, am underneath the authority of this text that I didn't write. There's parts of it that grate against my life, but I come under it. Or you take like hell, like that's showing people like, look, I didn't think this up. Like my, my family's not Christian. So when they go, Mark, how do you believe in hell? Like that's insane. Well, if I just start rationalizing it, it starts to sound more insane, you know, <laughs> but, but if I go, well, you know, let me show you some Bible texts of why I think this, and then we can wrestle with it, but just know I didn't come up with this over dinner. Yeah. You know, the yeah. text tells, you know, so I think that's part of it too. Well, that's a novel yeah. idea. Letting the Bible be the center of your either one, your communication, your theology, or your perspective. Breakthrough right. with Mark Clark. Whoa. Yeah, you guys, know, tweet that out. That knowledge, right? <laughs> no, I, I definitely want to make sure we, we're getting really close to time. We want to respect your time, but I definitely want to make sure we talk about uh, your latest book that just came out, uh, The Problem of Jesus, that released in, in February. Um, and so unfortunately I, I'm writing a dissertation right now. So the only books I'm reading are pertaining to my dissertation. So, uh, nice. I have not had a chance to read it yet. I'm just going to say that face value. I think Jeff has had all a chance good, to, all good. uh, yeah. peruse it a little bit, but kind of walk us through, uh, the problem of Jesus. I love the title, um, and kind of help us understand what the book is about. Yeah. So growing up as a skeptic, um, and, and doing this for the last 11 years, I wanted to present, a book basically took everything I've thought, read, preached, taught about Jesus in the last 20 years and go, how do you reach the skeptic and take the believer, the leader, the, the doubter, whatever, and deepen their affection for Jesus? So it deals with some of those classic apologetics questions. Does he exist? How do the gospels work? You know, miracles, are they legitimate or not legitimate? But then also kind of pivots into like, discipleship, loving God, the parables, the death, yeah. the resurrection. What does all this actually mean? Who was you? So because I, I think, I mean, coming back to the, the theme of our conversation, it's like you can reject Christianity based on people fumbling their version of it, but don't do that. Clear away all of that and deal with Jesus. Who was he? What did he say? What was he about? And then, you know, take Christianity based on that. So in order to do that, we got to present Jesus clearly. We got to get into what was his world about? Because he wasn't a 21st century right. Canadian or American. So what was he saying? What was he doing? Um, and then how do those gospels that present him work? Uh, what does discipleship actually look like in the modern world? Because we're disciples of something. And so we worship beauty and relationships and whatever. But Jesus is going, no, don't do that because you're going to derail your life. Um, you know, so anyway, the, the book's heart is to go, how does the skeptic actually come to know Jesus? And how does the believer actually grow in affections toward Jesus? And how does a person who's like, I'm going to walk away, you know, I, I think it was um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn or something back in the day gave an image of if you're walking along a path and you ask me, what's the direction home? And I point you in the direction, but I'm walking along that path drunkenly. It doesn't mean it's not the right direction. It just means I'm drunk walking it. And I think that pointing people to Jesus and going, he's 
the one you got to deal with, not the church fumbling around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we got to clarify that for people. And that's what the book's trying to do. Yeah. That's amazing. You use an interesting word to describe the actions of Jesus. You call him a scandal. Why, why a scandal, Mark? Uh, you know, multiple times throughout the Gospels and the epistles, it's the, the scandal on, right? The, the offense, the stumbling block <clears throat> of Jesus. And so it's to try to go, he's not, you know, we've got this kind of third version of Jesus in our, in our kind of post-Christian world where, you know, you know, you're wearing your Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. He's a good leader. He's a good revolutionary. He's a good example of love and sacrifice. And it's like, yeah. No, if, if, if he wasn't God actually accomplishing, you know, what he, what he came to accomplish, I'm not sure his, his example is actually all that good. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he made a, billions of people think he was who he wasn't. He died super early. And for what? Like, just, just like dying as an example, uh, didn't really, you know, it's not really that great of an accomplishment. There's other people who do that. What did this actually accomplish? Um, and so this, this, you know, you go back and you read the gospels and there was one of two responses to Jesus. It was like, I follow him and I worship him and I give my life for him, or I want to throw him off a cliff and crucify him. There's not like this third road of like yeah. he's a nice guy you know he's a good example you know of spirituality and let's just like he's just like all the others or whatever so uh that's kind of the scandal it's like can your can your heart and mind and life be confronted by the fact that jesus can upend everything and that's why like like i look at my church sometimes you know you know easter when everybody shows up at your church yeah. or christmas eve and you know your church doubles or triples in size what i tend to look at them and say is the reason you are not going to come back here next week the reason you're not going to receive jesus today it's not because you're smarter than everybody else in the room and you epistemologically can't bring yourself to terms with evil and suffering. It's because you're a coward. And what I mean by that is you are terrified of what Jesus is going to mean for your sex life. You're terrified of what he's going to mean for your money life, your work life. And you don't want to go tell your coworker that you gave your life to Jesus today. So, so you better evaluate the thing behind the thing. That's the scandal. Yeah is there's a confrontation that he creates in our life that doesn't let us just choose what's comfortable over what's true. And yeah. that's, that's what the book's trying to shake. That's good. Well, as we say here in the South, that'll preach. <laughs> you probably in Canada too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably in Canada as well. So, Hey, man, preach, I'm eh? telling you, it's been such a joy. I, I could literally carry on this conversation for hours. I mean, I just, it's, you're obviously well, a very, a very uh, smart and well-read guy and um, doing amazing work. Trying. Do, do, yeah. Doing my best. So thanks and for having me. Highly bragged on by Kerry Newhoff. Let's yeah. be clear there. Yeah, let's, he let's mentions your name yeah. often on the, yeah. his show. So That's not a bad endorsement. Right? Buddy Kerry says your name quite often as, as one of the prime he, examples of, of doing great work, yeah. not just in Canada, but everywhere. So yeah, well, we, have one, we have one final question that we ask everybody on the show. And uh, so we're, we're going to obviously ask you as well. So what is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? Oh, man. 
most of the lessons I learned in college did not take place in the classroom. So the ones that you can share. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean that in a good way. So uh, <laughs> that's another podcast. Bro. That's a different show. Different that's show. The one, yeah, that's the one you post on the dark web. That's um, a- and so, um, man, my first year of college, I met a professor uh, and I said, he was talking about Christian life and discipleship. And I'm looking up at the guy and he says, you got to find a mentor. You know, you know, Kaim Potok, he's this Jewish writer. He writes amazing novels. He wrote this in, in, in one of his novels called The Chosen. It's like a rabbinic kind of thing where um, one of the characters looks to the other characters and he says, uh, uh, the two things you need to do in life is find a teacher and find a friend. Hmm. And, uh, and, and that's like a kind of a deep Jewish way of thinking about life like you're always looking for that rabbi you're looking for the and find a friend so so he said that he said something similar to that one day in class and i just kind of went into his office and i said you know will you be my teacher basically will you be my mentor he started pouring into my life in a way that changed the whole direction of my life um and i'm telling you it was it was out at restaurants at 10 o'clock at night wrestling with what's the apostle Paul saying in Galatians when he introduces the spirit as kind of that eschatological fulfillment of the story. And, and it's six o'clock in the morning over coffee in his office dealing with if the historical Jesus framework is this, how does it, yeah. And it was all of that. Like I would get assigned two books for class and I'd read 12 because of this guy. This wasn't about schooling. You know, yeah. this was about life. This was about Jesus. This was about like having my whole world upended. And without him, I would have just gone to college, done my four years, you know, done whatever with my life. So, uh, you know, I guess the big principle is like, you find that like teacher and you come under that teacher and you let them change your, your life mm-hmm. uh, versus you know, I think it's still probably the reason right now, I don't know how you guys do social life. I tend not to really hang out with people my own age because they're all just making the same dumb mistake. We're all just staring around at each other going, I don't know how to raise kids to you. I don't know. My marriage is whatever. It's like, go hang out with a 50 year old and learn if you're 40 years old and let them surround you. Um, and maybe that's the reason I do that now. It's like, don't waste your college life by just hanging out with people the same age drinking lattes, asking the existential questions, go hang out and sit under a professor and let them change your life. Yeah, so that's good. So I know that's pretty specific, but no, no, that was great. great. That was incredibly so valuable. I think Rob and I both can espouse to uh, mentors in our college years that had a deep impact yeah. on our life, whether they're professors or people outside the, the classroom. So, um, yeah. Man, what a what a joy! We were so glad to finally get connected to you. We we've had all kinds of problems trying to get set up, but this was a great conversation. And Mark, as we always say here at the Leadership Drip, you have a seat at the table. Thanks for being on the show, buddy. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate your work. Hey, friends! Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way, we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.